Welcome to the Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman, and I'm the managing partner at Federman Capital. We invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before starting the fund, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. And all the opinions expressed on this show, either by guests or me, do not reflect the opinions of Federman Capital. Nothing on the Blockchain VC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. All right, guys. I have some amazing interviews coming up. So to make sure you get early access to these as soon as they are released, please make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform you're using. Really excited to welcome to the show today Mance Harmon, co-founder and CEO of Hadera Hashgraph. Mance, welcome to the show. Ah, Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, really excited to welcome you to the show. Hadera is a really interesting project, and I'd love to get your take on it. To get started, Mans, why don't we start with your background and how you got into the crypto space? Sure. So um, I am a techie, been doing this for a long time, a couple degrees in computer science, most recently from the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. Um, I was in the military doing basic research for the Air Force Senior Scientist for Machine Intelligence, doing machine learning research way back in the 90s, and then taught computer science at the Air Force Academy, specifically cybersecurity, was course director for cybersecurity. I moved on then to manage a massive program for the Missile Defense Agency for the U.S. government. And then uh, decided to become an entrepreneur and left the military. I've started two prior companies, both in the space of identity and access management. Sold both of those. Um, was in working for a company that is a leader in identity back in 2013 and 14 when I started getting interested in distributed consensus. And my co-founder, Lehman Baird, PhD from Carnegie Mellon. He and I have been working together since 93. We worked together through most of those assignments there in the military. Uh, he had an interest in distributed consensus back then and decided that he wanted to solve a really hard math problem, specifically the problem of how you maximize security at the protocol level, achieve something called asynchronous Byzantine fault tolerance. That's the theoretical limit in terms of security for a distributed consensus algorithm. Achieve that level of security while at the same time uh, maximizing performance in terms of throughput. And he worked for years to solve that problem. And in 2015, he, he had success. He cracked the nut, so to speak. And 
today we call that hash graph, but uh, that that invention, that discovery that he made was profound uh, and strong enough that we, you know, we felt compelled that we had to take it to market. And so in late 2015, we started another company. He's been with me in both of my prior startups. We've been co-founders in, in, in all of those companies. And uh, that was Swirls, which is the parent company of Hedera Hashgraph. In 2017, we had enough uh, work behind us that we decided it was time and appropriate to begin building a public network on this new tech, Hashgraph. And that was the genesis of Hedera. And here we are now several years later and uh, seeing a lot of success. But but that's the story. So it's deep tech for both of us. He's the smart one. I just happen to have the benefit <laughs> of tagging along and trying to, to manage business aspects. And uh, But it's been a, a 26, 27-year relationship that has, has served us well in, in, in all parts of our professional careers. So sounds like this has been a long time in the making. It has. Yeah. And, you know, I still... I'm a little surprised people are still hearing about Hedera. Uh, obviously, we've been doing this for a lot of years now, and uh, it's it's gratifying to to see the success that we've had and and continue to to build that brand. Yeah, absolutely. So, what is Hedera, Mans? Well, Hedera is you know it's interesting when we think about public networks. Most of the focus is on the technology. You know, the industry is always looking at the next protocol. What's, you know, what are the advantages, disadvantages of proof of work versus proof of stake, et cetera. But as important, maybe even more important in some ways, is the governance of the public network. Um, who is the body of decision makers on uh, items like, the the roadmap, the tech roadmap, um, treasury management. Uh, you know what when when developers or enterprises begin to think about building applications on top of any given public network, one of the questions they have to ask themselves is, do I trust the organization, um, distributed organization, to manage this global infrastructure? appropriately for the long term. And that's what we've tried to address in Hedera. Hedera is the combination of fantastic tech, which is Hashgraph, as well as a governance body that is designed to be around for the long term, to understand the issues that enterprise uh, adopters have to deal with, Specifically, the governing body is an organization ultimately of 39 global blue chip organizations, enterprises that are uh, cross industry, they're geo distributed, and then they're also term limited. So the members of the council can remain members up to six years, two, three year terms before they have to rotate off. They design of this governance body was sort of inspired by the original visa model going back to the 1960s. There was actually a book written by 
the founder of Visa back when it was called Bank AmeriCard. His name is D Hawk, and he is um, he wrote a book about his experience. It's called One from Many. And years ago, I read the book and I marked it up. It literally, I have it at my house. It's full of uh, writings and highlighter. And I took the the governance model principles that he outlined in that book, and we just applied them here directly. And what we have now is a distributed governing body. We currently have uh, 10 announced members. We will be announcing more council members. And the goal and expectation is that we, like I said, we grow that to 39. It should stay at 39. And then over time, the membership changes and uh, we, you know, it's, it's a cross sector. So we've got 18 sectors of, of business that we're trying to pull representation from. Uh, and it's also geo distributed so that it's not representing any single vertical or single geography. It's meant to be a governing council that brings the interests of a global economy to the governance of this, this global public network. Got it. So you mentioned there are 39 different members in the mm-hmm. governance of the protocol. Do you plan to increase that number further moving forward? Or, or is it set it's at actually, 39? No. Well, so this is the interesting thing. By design, we gave up control to the council. So yes, we bootstrapped it. We've created it. But uh at the end of this past year, 2019, the initial board, there's a board of managers. Let me just describe it for a moment. Um, the council itself, the, the members of the council are members of an LLC. So we're a Delaware-based LLC. And anybody that joins the council takes ownership or membership in the LLC in a, in, a, in a very technical legal way. And so this is not just a consortium of, of loosely held together members through a marketing agreement. This is real in a fundamental sense in that way. And there are committees. So for example, there's a legal and regulatory committee and where there is expertise and the organizations, they contribute at the committee level. There's a tech steering committee. There's a product committee. There's a finance committee, that sort of thing. Then there's a board of managers that is tasked with managing on sort of a day-to-day uh, basis, sort of like you might expect a, a board of directors in a normal corporation to do. That board of managers used to be me and Lehman, uh, and then we expanded it by adding two council members and then we, we dissolved that board at the end of last year, and we now have the first fully elected board of managers that represents the council at large. So through that process, by design, we have given up control. The council makes the decisions about everything. They, uh, you know, they make the decisions about treasury management, the product roadmap, the legal and regulatory posture, et cetera, et cetera, in the ways that I've described. So to directly answer your question, it's really a question for the council. Um, do they want to expand beyond 39? My guess is it will take us another year, 18 months, maybe two years to, to get to that level of, of 39 members. We've kept the bar very high in terms of who can join the council. 
the, the caliber of, of organization that can join the council. So, for example, uh, some of our members today include IBM, Deutsche Telekom, Boeing, uh, FIS World Pay, Magazine Luisa out of out of South America, that Swisscom blockchain, Nomura, and and others. That's you know it's that caliber of organization and uh and you know to 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 get those members takes takes quite a lot of time so i'm expecting that it'll take another 18 months to get to 39 and then it will be up to the council to decide how they want to expand or or not expand got it so a couple of questions about what you just said months a so as the CEO of Hadera, how do you think about your responsibility and your ability to make decisions versus what is left to the council? Well, so I work at the pleasure of the council. Um, quite literally, again, by design, the board of managers decides who the CEO will be. Is it fair to think about that like a public company where you have a board of directors and then you have yeah. the CEO. So, so you basically make the day-to-day decisions. You run the company and then you have that council, which is sounds like it's pretty akin to like a board of directors in, a, in just a normal public company. It's a little more than that. It, it, you know, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting situation where you don't normally have a board of managers of, you know, with 39 members. Yeah. Uh, right. So it's a cross between a standards organization, uh, and it's more than a standards body because these council members are actually running nodes. So each council member controls a node. I mean, that's where we get the technical trust uh, is in having a distributed network where the nodes are run by the council members. Today, there will be more nodes than just the council members ultimately will we'll scale to many tens of thousands of nodes. Of course, that, uh, you know, that's not going to happen this year or next year, but, but that's the plan for growing to full decentralization. So it's both a network as well as a standards body because the, the committees are literally making standards types of decisions on an ongoing basis as we mature the organization and it is, it, you know, but it's, it has all the, the standard uh, business units that you might need to manage this global organization and network. And, and from that perspective, it has sort of the flavor of a board of managers you might see in a public company. I see. And my second question on that is, what's the criteria for joining that board or council? Like, how do you decide who qualifies to be a member? Generally speaking, the market cap of the participant needs to be at least $10 billion U.S. dollars. Um, there, there potentially are exceptions, and I think there have been exceptions, because there are certain market sectors where you really want the, you know, the, one of the top participants to to be a member of the council, but for that sector, there are no public companies with 10 billion market cap. So, so for example, DLA Piper. DLA Piper is one of the top global law firms. 
They are one of the earliest council members. They're a very valued council member, uh, but they they don't have $10 billion public market cap. Right. And it, we still need representation from the legal industry, and they happen to be one of the very best global firms. And so so we it's, it's kind of subjective um, in that we it's not like there is a list of criteria and if if a potential target member doesn't meet one of those line items then they're eliminated uh we're looking for the most trusted best um organizations by brand and and market position uh on a global basis and uh and really that's that is the criteria we the whole point of the council is to do a couple of things. One, to instill trust by the market at large that uh, that they will do a good job managing this global organization. And um, and two, to help us bootstrap a cryptocurrency. You know, there's both the, the market uh, concerns where organizations are deciding whether or not they want to build product on top of the platform. Do they trust the decision makers behind the platform? Number one. And then there is the technical uh, concern of how do you bootstrap a cryptocurrency that's based on proof of stake rather than proof of work? How do you bootstrap that uh, into something that, that the market trusts? And, and we could go deep in that if, if there was interest, but uh, you know, there's both technical and business concerns for, for, for inputs, I should say, for how we design this governing body. Let's talk about Hadera, like the, the public network itself. Sure. What are the use cases and how do you see Hadera being different than some of the other public blockchains out there? Yeah. Well, first off... Um, we have focused on enterprise. I believe that Web 3.0 is likely not going to be defined by fantastic new consumer-focused apps or dApps. I'm sure that there will be some killer consumer-focused apps, but I think the real value of Web 3.0 is in the improvements in business process, business process optimization that is provided by a, an enterprise-grade distributed ledger. And, and that's what we've focused on. We've focused on enterprise uh, use cases. These use cases are defined by the, you know, the mission-critical nature of the use case, the potentially high-volume throughput requirements for the use case, often the requirements for privacy, uh, that you wouldn't normally be able to achieve in a typical public network. You know, what is it that enterprises desire or require for taking their use cases to market on a public public network? That, that was the challenge uh, that we wanted to address or uh, tackle. When you talk about business processes, what do you have in mind? Oh, well, supply chain could be an example, right? If you, um, if you have a supply chain uh, that has um, the need to optimize the uh, settlement or recording of, of the movement of uh, product through the supply chain, there's a lot of money 
that is lost to inefficiencies in the way supply chains work today. If it's possible to make to to bring the trust and efficiencies of a, a public network to the a private network that is designed to address a single use case, a supply chain use case, then that's the goal. And a lot of money could be saved by eliminating uh, inaccuracies or uh, confusion that gets uh, that, that that happens as product flows through supply chain, both directions. You know, product it goes one direction to the end users or consumers or something happens and it has to flow back in the other direction for whatever reason. There's, there's just a lot of uh, opportunity there to realize efficiencies that result in the, the savings of many tens of millions or hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for any given you know, global supply chain. So that's an example. Um, I think that there are other examples dealing with settlement. So for here's another example. Um, take the telcos. The roaming of cell phone charges, if I, I live in the US, if I go to Europe and I'm using Orange instead of Verizon, then the costs associated with the use of Orange uh, somehow have to be paid by Verizon. Today, that settlement process between Verizon and Orange can take months to occur. And it may be the case that I don't have a valid plan in, in the U.S. And, the, and Orange just extends those services to me and, mm-hmm. and it doesn't get reimbursed. So um, there are a lot of B2B types of use cases that are high volume. They currently are using technology or processes that can be decades old and having a single source of truth that gets updated in near real time and everybody has a a common view into that database and, and can trust that that database is not being tampered with by any single party, et cetera, that can drive real efficiencies in B2B uh, use cases and, and relationships. So it's those types of mm-hmm. uh, use cases that we have been focused on. But uh, I think the original question is, how do we, you know, how are we different as a public network? We're different yeah. in that we, you know, we're focused on enterprise, but it's also the case that the tech is fundamentally different. The tech is orders of magnitude faster than first generation tech. So for example, Bitcoin today can process maybe seven transactions per second globally. That's it. Ethereum is on the order of 10, 15 transactions per second. Of course, Ethereum has been working for a long time to try and move away from proof-of-work technology to a proof-of-stake platform that it hopes will, will improve its performance. Today, in our beta version of the public network that is throttled, we are demonstrating 10,000 transactions per second at a fraction of the cost per transaction of what you would pay on the, those first generation platforms. When we open that kind of throughput, the range of use cases that can be addressed is very different than the range of use cases one might consider 
if you're stuck to seven or 10 or 12 transactions per second. And so when we're working with our enterprise customers on these business process focused use cases, the, uh, you know, the throughput, the use cases individually are on the order of tens uh, or hundreds of transactions per second, not a few. And uh, that's fundamentally different. And, and we have that today. It's operational in the market. And we're working on POCs and use cases with our council members. And some of those will be going to market this year. Interesting. One of the things that I think distinguishes Ethereum from others and have allowed it so far to remain in the lead in terms of activity is just the size of the ecosystem, right? So you have like tens of thousands of developers probably at this point building on top of Ethereum. So it's it's one thing to compete purely on the tech. It's another to build an entire ecosystem around that. Curious how you're thinking about that, because obviously, you know, to drive adoption of Hadera, you need to see more and more talent migrate onto your ecosystem. How do you plan or how are you already doing that? Yeah. Well, there are two parts to to answering that question. Um, Let me start by saying, in order to answer the question, I need to provide a little context. Okay. We announced the network or or opened the network um, in September of this past year. And when we did that, we had an initial three services, cryptocurrency as a service, files, storage as a service, and then Solidity. And Solidity, of course, is the scripting language that is used on Ethereum. And so Ethereum dApps that work on Ethereum today can be ported over and used on our platform without any change or very minor change, if any at all. So we did recognize the need to enable the ecosystem of Ethereum developers to quickly and easily use our platform if they chose to do so. That's part of the answer. So if I'm a developer or let's say a CEO of a company that is built on Ethereum, I can port that to Hadera with no issues? That's correct. That's correct. That's a big deal. It is a big deal, but it's the wrong model. And and I what I mean by that is that when we think about smart contracts, the way they work today on all the public networks is that you 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 have a script, a smart contract, you execute that, that smart contract gets executed on all the nodes or some large subset of the nodes in that network. And that's expensive. It doesn't scale well. It will never scale well. The developers that are using it are sharing those same node resources with all the other developers in the world. So if this whole space really takes off, there's a serious problem just in having the resources to run the smart contracts at all, and and that will drive the price up. In addition, because these are public nodes, the information that is in these smart contracts is public, and that's just unacceptable to for, for a lot of use cases, whether it be uh, driven by regulatory concerns or just privacy information. 
uh, privacy-related concerns, et cetera. So I think that the model itself of using smart contracts in a public network in the way that most of the world understands is the wrong model. To address that, what we've done is created something we call the Hedera Consensus Service. And that basically just exposes Hashgraph as a consensus algorithm and makes it possible for uh, developers to use that directly rather than building smart contracts. Let me say it a different way. Today, and this gets a little bit technical, but I think conceptually it'll make sense. Okay. Today, these public networks like Ethereum and others really merge two functions. At the bottom layer, they put transactions into a consensus order. And that's where the distributed trust comes from. This is what excited the world about this new tech category is that you have lots of different nodes voting on the order of transactions that in the network. And then you get a stream of transactions in consensus order. That's one part of the equation. On top of that, then, we have this thing called smart contracts. And smart contracts run code. Each, each node in the network will accept that stream of transactions that have put in, been put in consensus order, and then they will process it, and they'll validate the results of, of that business logic, the smart contract. And if you have all the nodes in the network uh, agreeing on the output of that business logic, then you've validated that um, you know, that, that the, the processing of those transactions is, is fair. It's been, again, distributed trust. No one is tinkering or, or changing the results of the output of the business logic. If you split those two functions apart and you take the smart contract piece and you put it into a private network and you just use the public network for putting transactions in order and that's it, you end up with the best of both worlds. You can take a single application that may require tens or hundreds of thousands of transactions per second running in a private network where uh, you still get the distributed trust of that smart contract or the validation that you would normally have. But again, it's in a private network. Maybe it's a network of um, uh, carriers, telephone carriers that are operating their private network, but they put the transactions in order using a public network like Hedera with our consensus service that can process today 10,000 transactions per second, and we'll go up beyond that. Then you get the best of both worlds. You get low-cost trust, you get privacy, you get fully dedicated resources in this private network. And then going back to your question about the developer community, you're not limited to solidity. You can build these distributed applications running in the private network using any programming language you want, any development environment you want. You completely unshackle the developer community by the, in the way that they are today with these, you know, these scripting languages that are expensive and restricted to, to public networks. I believe the future is exactly that. Consensus will be done in a public network, but the validation and the business logic 
will be done in what we call these application networks, distributed application networks that are private. And this is the way that the enterprise world uh, gets what they want. Privacy, fully dedicated resources, low cost, but the trust of a public network for putting transactions into consensus order. Mm-hmm. So sounds like it's a combination of uh, a layer one and a layer two blockchain in one. It's actually a little bit different than that. I call it layer zero. What we're offering in the Hedera consensus service is effectively Hashgraph as a service. It's just pure consensus. That's layer zero. Now, here's what's cool. Hypothetically, and we're not pursuing this, but others maybe will. Hypothetically, Ethereum could take their, uh, you know, their smart contract layer and use HCS, the Hedera consensus service, and basically circumvent the problems that they're having with scaling into a proof of stake system. Now, they probably won't do that, but maybe somebody will. But with layer zero, the consensus algorithm itself, we have the very best tech in the world, objectively, that can be layer zero for any public network. It can be layer zero for any private network. And that's what is new and unique here and what we're offering. So is that how you're thinking about building that ecosystem, potentially bringing some public blockchains, Ethereum or maybe others, onto Hadera and basically allow them to build on top of it? It's yes, but not public. It's, it's private today. So we've already announced a, uh, a partnership. Well, I, like I said, IBM is a council member. And one of the reasons that they are a council member is their interest in taking Hyperledger and using HCS as the transaction ordering service for these private Hyperledger implementations and deployments. We're unifying public and private networks through HCS. Yeah, that's really interesting. So basically, you're complementing Hyperledger and providing that added functionality on the public side. And then you have also like the private offering in addition to that, because obviously enterprise clients, oftentimes they need that privacy as well. That's it. Anybody can build a private network, have the benefits of a private network, use HCS for putting the transactions in order and have the benefits of a global, fully distributed, trusted uh, you know, transaction orders, uh, stream of transactions put into consensus order. Yeah. So let's talk uh, for a second, Mans, about the, your native token. Why do you need that? Where does that come into play? Yeah. So each service that runs on top of Hedera, and like I'd mentioned, there are three today, cryptocurrency, file storage, smart contract, Solidity, we're preparing to release HCS as a, a, you know, a first order service. That'll be the fourth service running on top of Hedera. Each of those requires um, HBAR as payment for the use of the service when the service API is called. So developers building apps or dApps, when they make API calls for, to use the services to build their applications, they at the same time 
pay in HBAR for the use of those APIs with each call. So Right. And then just to clarify for listeners who might not be familiar with it, HBAR is the Hadera Hashgraph native token. Thank you. Yes, that's correct. That's the name of the token. Yeah. So um, the economy is pretty simple. It, you know, it's, it's a pay per call type of uh, business model. The tokens flow into Hedera. They then, uh, you know, get sold back out into the market. And those that are building dApps and need the tokens to make the API calls go and buy those tokens from the market. And, and that's the, the simple economy. Yeah. So there's basically my understanding is there's a couple of uh, roles that the token plays, right? It's basically like a dual purpose token. One is that fuel for the network for every transaction. And the other is basically the protection, right? So because it's a proof of stake consensus algorithm, you stake your uh, weighted voting with the H bars and that's how you secure the network. Yeah, that's exactly right. That, that's exactly right. So the math, uh, the way the math works out, as long as two thirds of the tokens uh, that are voted are honest, then the um, the transactions will be put into consensus order in in a fair way. So, um, and and that's. You know, that's part of the, the challenge in bootstrapping these proof-of-stake systems. When you have a brand new token, the value of the token is very low, and you need to ensure that at least two-thirds of the tokens are held by honest people. Then the question is, how do you do that? If the token value starts going up and there's real value there, how do you trust the token holders not to steal the the value of the tokens. You can't do that with, you wouldn't do that with a hundred of your friends, mm -hmm. right? Or, uh, you know, smaller businesses where the, the value of the token is very meaningful in terms of total value to those businesses. That's part of the reason that we went with this model of, of getting global enterprises to participate in this council because the value of the token to these global enterprises is just totally inconsequential to their total value and their revenues. They care far more about their reputations than they do about colluding with each other to influence the, the order of transactions in this, in this proof of stake network. And so the, the council members are running the nodes today. They, control or they vote the weight of far more than two thirds of the tokens that will go down over time. And as the, uh, as the value of the token goes up, it becomes increasingly difficult for a bad actor to buy up a third of the tokens, increasingly expensive to buy up a third of those tokens and to levy attack on the network. And once we get to the point where we believe it's it's nearly impossible for a bad actor or a group of bad actors to to do that, to corner the market, as it were, on H bars, it's at that point that we will then begin allowing anonymous nodes to participate or cross the uh, you know the one third threshold 
in terms of tokens in circulating supply. Got it. So I get the point around the importance of protecting the network. And obviously you have some major players involved that that's of utmost importance for them. Obviously, you've also raised a significant amount of funding, right? I think like $118 million to date. How did you think about the token economics? The reason I ask this is, you know, when I engage with entrepreneurs, when it's an equity raise, it's actually fairly straightforward. You know, it's been done for decades now, and it's a proven business model. With tokens, it's always, I feel it's more difficult for me to assess because I feel like we're so early and I'm not sure that we've figured out the right way to structure it just yet as an industry, right? Yeah. There's obviously a few examples, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum and so forth. But in general, oftentimes it's very difficult at this point, I think, to fully capture the value that's being generated and sometimes it's a very significant value in terms of the technology and the progress being made but it's sometimes it's difficult to capture that via the token just because again i think we're early how are you thinking about that and if you can talk a bit about the token economics i know a few months ago you've also mentioned publicly that you're thinking about updating that so we'd love to get your take yeah i'm happy to talk about that so First off, I think it's useful to think about the difference in conceptual, conceptually the difference in models between equities and, and tokens. Um, and what I mean by that is it's not like the tokens are equity and they're going to pay dividends. It's more like these tokens are exactly what their name implies. They are tokens that are used for the purchase of goods or services. The analogy I like to use is a subway system. You know, uh, you choose a major city, you're putting in a subway system, and there is a fixed number of tokens that allow passengers to, to ride the subway. And you then have uh, some way of doling those tokens out initially. And as the number of people grows that's using that subway system, the demand for the tokens goes up. There is a market that enables uh, subway users to buy the tokens. And what's going to happen? I mean, obviously, the value of the token goes up. People have to pay more and more for the token to use the same set of services. So conceptually, that's the model that I always keep in mind when thinking about token economics. From our perspective, I mean, I realize there are a lot of platforms or maybe platform is the wrong wrong word, but a lot of dApps that have tokens that don't play a role in capturing the fundamental value of the underlying product or service. In our case, Uh, It's very much like a subway system. We have a set of services, the ones that I've already mentioned. We have a fixed supply of tokens that will ever be minted or go into the market. And as the use of those services goes up, then that would simply dictate the value of the token. The market will end up deciding what the value of the token is based on the fundamental the fundamentals of the business, which is the the sale of these products and services that we have on 
on the network. So uh, it's really straightforward. I think that that is really important because in the coming years where today the, you know, the value of tokens is, is largely driven by speculation, I think that will end. It will likely end within the next couple of years and platforms like ours will be valued then not based on speculation, but based on the fundamentals. Is there real value being delivered to the market? And how does the token reflect that value? And there's a direct linkage in our case between the value of the token and the value that the market is willing to pay for the services running on top of the platform. Yeah, so basically what you're saying, the more it gets used, the more demand there is, there's a certain fixed supply, value is going to go up over time as more and more people start using the native token and see real value in using it. Correct, yep. Did you consider, when you were thinking about that initial raise, wondering if you considered pursuing an equity raise instead, or maybe alternatively just using a stable coin, which again doesn't require you to go through the whole token economics uh, exercise. We never seriously considered the use of stable coins. Um, the design for this goes back, you know, long before stable coins were s- seriously being contemplated. I mean, maybe in, in, you know, there were, there were a small number of stable coins. I don't actually, I don't even remember when the first stable coins came onto the market, but we began thinking about this in 2014 and 2015 and, uh, you know, and realized the opportunity had come to do something like this in 2017. 2014, even Ethereum didn't exist yet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so uh, it, it's one of those situations where the technology in large part drove a lot of the design decisions but at the same time, the need for really strong governance played a, a big role in the design decisions as well. And, and like I've said, the, the challenge that we grappled with early on was how do you bootstrap a proof of stake token, so a native token, if you have to go from zero value to something that's large enough that... Uh, it's not going to be subject to civil attacks, that sort of thing. So um, it's always been the case that we assumed a, a, a native token. We never seriously considered a stable token. And um, yeah, the, those were the drivers of the design was strong governance and bootstrapping a proof of stake token with, the, uh, with a business model that ties the value of the services that you know the market that ascribes to those services to the token itself yeah the other um, challenge i think i see sometimes with tokens is just the the public nature of it right because it's traded there's a price is that something that you find challenging or you just kind of ignore it and focus on what you need to do next because it always reminds me a bit of like managing like a public company where you know you have a stock price and uh, you know investors are happy if it goes up and they're not so happy if it goes down. It's a constant challenge. Yeah, constant challenge. Um, how do you overcome that? How do you address that as the CEO? 
Well, it is. Um, but the challenge really comes from the lack of regulatory clarity. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. I mean, that that's where the challenge really comes from. Because we, of course, we've been in discussions, a dialogue now for almost two years, I guess, with the SEC. Um, we, you know, our, our sort of strategy, if you will, as it relates to the regulators, is to make sure that we never surprise them, that we always tell them up front how our system works, the advantages of our particular model, how we're viewing the token and its role in both providing the security of the platform as well as the function that it provides for the use of the services and the ways that we've described. We never want the regulators to uh, be surprised by anything that we do in the market. And, and we, at the same time, we don't know exactly how the regulators are going to view the token. And so we have to be careful uh, about how we discuss the token, how we talk about the token. We have to make clear how we view the token uh, to, to the market. And that lack of regulatory clarity often puts us in situations where we have to, you know, we, we, we may or may not take certain steps in the market that, uh, you know, that, that we would if we knew exactly where the SEC stands on whether the token, any given token, not just ours, but any given token is considered a security or not. This, this lack of clarity, it, it presents uh, a dilemma for us at multiple places within the business. It's surprising how often it comes up in the decision-making processes that we have as we manage the business. And uh, I do think it will get better, but we've been trying to sort of lead the market in terms of how we work with the regulators and, um, you know, I think that that's paying off, frankly. I, I think that the SEC in particular um, views us favorably. Uh, and, uh, well, that's not an official statement. That's an impression on my part. <laughs> uh, but, but I do think that it's, it's, for us, it's a very important part of the strategy, especially given the nature of the council, right? The council members... Like I said, they care about their brands, their brand equity, and we're not going to do anything that potentially puts the, their brands at risk, which means that we as an organization are ultra conservative as it relates to these types of, of matters that, you know, that plays out in various contorted ways all the time within the organization. Have you seen that improve over the past year or two like do you feel we're now at a better place of course there's there's a need for much greater clarity but i just wonder if if you feel like there's more clarity now than there was like a year or two ago do you see progress on that front i wouldn't say there's more clarity but i have seen progress and i do think that there will be significant proposals coming out of the regulators this year probably even early this year, that will begin to describe a direction that the regulators want to move. And 
and with that, there there will come the clarity. So, um, so yes, I think progress has been made, and I'm optimistic that that progress will now be reflected publicly by the regulators in the short term. Yeah, I mean that's just such a huge issue, right? Like you have to have regulatory clarity, especially when you're working with such large organizations as some of your council members. Yeah, when we started, everyone pushed us to not be domiciled in the U.S., you know, go to really Malta or Switzerland or whatever, right? Singapore, maybe. But we made the deliberate decision to do exactly the opposite, to be Delaware-based, to be totally legit, right? You know, as crystal clean or clear as, as we could be and to directly engage the regulators and um, try to be a partner uh, in, in helping them through this process is, is at the same time we're asking them to help us through this process. And, uh, you know, I think maybe we're one of the very few platforms that took that approach. And I do think that it's paying off. So it's paying off in what way? Why did you decide to make that decision, which must have been a difficult one? Well, partly because we wanted the we wanted to influence what the regulatory policy would be ultimately, and the only way you do that is to engage. And uh, you know, the regulators are looking for good examples, not just bad examples. You know, they're looking for good examples, uh, good good partners or players in the market. We need more good examples for sure. Yeah, and we, we viewed the opportunity to become the poster child of how to do this correctly. Now, there's pain associated with that, and uh, we'll get through the process, and, and maybe um, you know we'll benefit from that. But more than us, you know, those that follow us are, are going to benefit from, from these efforts on our part, and that's okay. You know, we, we wanted to make sure that this worked out correctly and... Uh, and there's only one way to do that, and that is to to engage and be a good partner through the process. Yeah. So I know, Mance, you launched your uh, public beta on the mainnet in mid-September of last year, right, of 2019. What has been the feedback so far? Can you share some examples of use cases? Yeah, so the, the usage was great, is great. Um, I think we're around four or five transactions per second. Today, on average, we've averaged maybe a little bit more than that earlier, six or seven. I'm not sure. Um, the tech is solid. Uh, we've had very few problems. It's a stable platform. It's throttled today to 10,000 TPS. HCS, the Derek Consensus Service that I described earlier, is getting ready to be launched. And what I would anticipate is that the number of TPS, while it may sort of grow slowly or in a sort of a linear fashion, a few TPS gets added, you know, over time, I, I think the likelihood is that it will be a step function, that we will see large numbers of TPS growth very quickly as some of these high throughput applications get launched and come online. Uh, some of our partners have been testing the limits of what can be done 
on a private test network and they're pumping tens, well, that's, that's not true, millions, millions of transactions per second, uh, excuse me, per day, I want to be accurate, millions of transactions per day through the test network today. And it's a wide variety of, of use cases. One of the earliest users is a company called AdStacks. Um, they are trying to bring uh, transparency to the advertising space. What's interesting to me anyway, is the market validation that has happened of this approach, this layer zero approach that I described, where we're enabling consensus as a service independently of smart contracts or file storage. And what I mean is this, long before we had the consensus service ready to launch, there were companies like AdStax that began to use the cryptocurrency service as sort of a uh, early version or you know prototype version of the consensus service. What they would do is create a hash of their information, basically a digest of their information, and then put that, that digest, that hash, into the memo field of a cryptocurrency transaction and then send that cryptocurrency transaction with a zero HBAR or a zero dollar value to themselves. And all that does is effectively notarize that hash. Think of it like a global public distributed notary service, a timestamping service that cannot be modified. And they're using it in that way with the cryptocurrency service. They take this stream then of transactions, cryptocurrency transactions with the memo field holding their information, and they use that as sort of the early version of the Hedera consensus service. And it's not just AdStacks, it's other companies as well that have, have used the cryptocurrency service in that way. And, um, and so that served as early validation of the market demand for consensus as a service that we're, you know, that we're now bringing to market. So, you know, there's AdStax. There is a company called Acor that just announced this week that they are tracking CDC and WHO, World Health, uh, Health Organization, uh, information on the coronavirus. Uh, you know, the number of fatalities and, and trends, et cetera. And they're using the same service and, uh, and making it available to uh, various constituents that might have the need for this type of information. And uh, these are precisely the kinds of use cases that we were hoping that we could address and the need for high volume uh, transaction processing is, is required in these cases. And, and so we're, we're beginning to see that. Yeah, that's exciting for everyone who's in the industry and involved and believes in it. I mean, the use cases of, you know, distributed ledger technology are just numerous. And I feel like oftentimes we talk about, you know, the opportunities in the financial services industry because it's so clear 
that you know banking and the way the payments networks work is just flawed at the moment and there's a lot of inefficiency there but there's also a great opportunity to solve or to improve many other business processes like you just described right that extend well beyond just financial services so it's just really exciting to see that it is you know it's sort of a general category that is emerging for us is audit there are a lot of use cases where you, you know businesses simply want to be able to prove that they had information available or they submitted or supplied information uh, and and having a global again I'll use this term it's not not one that I've, I've commonly used but I'm beginning to think of it in this way a global distributed trusted notary service that regulators can can trust and use and um, you know a lot of enterprises have data that they simply need to be notarized in a fundamental way that they can then prove to regulators uh, was the case at you know that moment in time and and that's what we provide again as as part of this consensus service layer zero service it's just a distributed public notary that that is trusted yeah. And I guess going back to what we discussed earlier, my sense oftentimes is, you know, we focus a lot on the competition within the crypto and the blockchain space. But actually, right now it's tiny, right? Like the big opportunity is replacing the inefficient legacy systems that are in place right now. If you take that supply chain example that you gave earlier, most likely, most companies just don't use any blockchain at this point. And so what you're up against is really just these legacy services that are in place right now. And that's where you can bring a lot of, um, a lot of added value you know, as part of distributed ledger technology. I think that's exactly right. I mean, if we think about it again, going back to first principles, and we think about it in terms of, of database architectures, um, old school was that each organization would run a database and they would share information with each other. And through that process, there was opportunity to introduce errors or inconsistencies in databases. And that ultimately costs money and time. And then, so the next generation beyond that was, let's have a central organization that runs a single database. And we all provide updates to that single database that improves efficiency, but it requires trusting a single organization with all of that information, not to change it or to manipulate it or to get advantage from it. That's unfair uh, with respect to the other organizations. In addition, because there's a single organization, they're prone to attack. If you can bring down that central organization, you bring down the entire system. And what we're doing here that's fundamentally new and different is every organization can run a copy of the database, what we would think of as a multi-master database. And everybody updates their local copy. And when they do, in real time, all those updates apply universally. And everybody has a common view into the same data at the same time. That resolves the inefficiencies, the discrepancies, it reduces costs, happens in real time. You don't have to 
sort of settle on a quarterly basis or whatever. And it raises the security level because now an attacker has to bring down a third or more of those databases in order to bring down the system. So it's all around improving security and efficiency and reducing costs. And conceptually, that's what we're doing now, uh, you know, across all manner of, of uh, use cases and, uh, you know, in business, in, in business processes as well. Right. And how do you think about, how do we get to mass adoption? How do we get from where we are right now to really blockchain becoming used by pretty much every medium-sized organization? What are we missing? We talked about regulation as obviously being one major obstacle. What else, from your perspective, months are we missing right now in order to get to that stage? I, I don't think it's going to be driven by a killer consumer app. I think that it's going to be driven by boring use cases, right? It's use cases that uh, you would not immediately identify unless you are deep into a particular vertical and they're primarily going to be B2B. And you'll see opportunities to uh, drive sort of business to business efficiencies, related uh, relationship efficiencies in the ways that we've previously described. And it will grow within the enterprise. And, uh, and you know, the bottom line for enterprises will begin to be affected and we'll see just improvements in productivity as a result. But, you know, I could be wrong. Maybe somebody's going to figure out a good killer app that, you know, that, that drives mass consumer adoption. But my sense is that it will more likely be just sort of the block and tackle, identifying these obscure use cases within business verticals that have a meaningful impact on top line, maybe bottom line for sure. And uh, it'll be, it'll grow from within the enterprise. Yeah, makes sense. So a couple of questions before we wrap up, Mans. A curious about your view about Bitcoin. I get that uh, you probably don't think it's the best solution to build on top of. Do you buy into the digital gold store of value narrative? You know, <laughs> it's a it's a great question. Uh, I could believe that Bitcoin. Uh, is around forever. I have a hard time believing that Bitcoin with its current consensus approach, proof of work approach, uh, is around forever. Just because it's so incredibly inefficient, it wastes so much electricity. Uh, if it really does take off the costs associated with managing Bitcoin as a, as a public ledger in global network are just going to be enormous. So here's what I would say. When we, when we first created, as an industry, we first created Ethernet, there were certain protocols that were used. The Ethernet at the protocol level today looks pretty much nothing like what it did when it was first introduced, yet we still call it Ethernet. 
uh, it, it could be that the brand of Bitcoin is so strong that I could believe that it persists. But uh, I only believe it will persist if the protocol underneath the brand somehow is modernized to eliminate the, uh, the costs and efficiencies, inefficiencies that exist there today. Got it. So because of the consensus algorithm, uh, you think it's going to have a hard time scaling? Well, it's not just that it's going to have a hard... Yes, I do think it would cause a, to, to have a hard time scaling. But if it gets mainstream adoption, the real costs uh, are going to skyrocket. You know, the electricity costs are, are going to skyrocket. And I don't think that we as a society will uh, live with that. Today, it's still niche. And it's all, you know, there are already uh, advertise not advertisements, but, you know, periodicals that, that have written and, and news reports that are written about the high costs associated with proof of work associated, you know, with, with Bitcoin. If it ever really takes off, I think that we as a society will demand a solution to that problem, the problem of electricity burn to support Bitcoin. And, uh, and if we don't solve that problem, then I don't think Bitcoin will, will persist. If it persists, it will change. That, that would be my... Mm, interesting. Yeah, I think there's a couple of uh, solutions, potential solutions to that, right? One is like side chains, like we see with the Lightning Network. And the other is, I think many folks would say, well, because it's proof of work for that specific use case of, you know, being store of value, digital store of value, actually the security of the network is more important than anything else. And that's why I think a lot of Bitcoin advocates are claiming that it's a trade-off that is worthwhile to solve that specific use case. Yeah, but I don't think the security, the security angle will not persist, right? I mean, Bitcoin enjoys 10 years of, uh, of usage, and from that perspective, yes, the code base is hardened. Um, but at a protocol level, you know, just pure math, the protocol is not as secure as an ABFT solution. And I'm not saying that because Hashgraph is ABFT. I'm just purely, you know, this is an objective statement based on the mathematics alone. And over time, the other protocols that have uh, better security at a sort of foundational level, their code bases are going to get hardened as well. And there will be uh, less of an argument that Bitcoin will persist because it's, quote, the secure solution. That just won't hold water, you know, certainly not in the academic community over time. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see how that unfolds. I mean, it's definitely going to be fascinating to see how the space uh, evolved. Personally, I'm a big believer in Bitcoin, but we'll see how that moves along. Last question, Mans. So, you know, this is the Blockchain VC podcast and there's a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs listening to the podcast. You obviously have a lot of experience as a founder and executive. Wondering if you mind sharing some best practices around fundraising and when approaching VCs or just investors in general, if there are any specific best practices that you found helpful 
in order to successfully fundraise? Yeah. So it's an interesting question. Um, I think I think what is really important uh, is transparency. And I think that when you're engaging these potential investors, it's important that you do so from the perspective of them being long-term partners. And uh, anytime you, you're getting, it's like you're getting married, right? Uh, you're going to be with right. these investors for a really long time. And when you enter into that type of relationship, it's important that they understand what they are uh, getting into and you understand what you are getting into with those particular people and organizations. And in uh, like marriage, you, you know, both, both parties are bringing something to the relationship. You need to figure out what it is you need from them more than money. Money is, of course, important. But you need to figure out what else it, they, they can bring to the table, so to speak, in order for you to, to be able to achieve your goals uh, and, and make sure that when you, when you do get married, when you enter into this relationship, that, uh, that they are both willing and capable of fulfilling those needs for the long-term success of the business. Yeah, that's a great point, right? Because I feel like when engaging with entrepreneurs, sometimes they want to hide or not talk so much about the bad stuff or the challenges they're going to face. And I think like it's just so much better, to your point, to be transparent about that, right? Investors get that it's not all rosy. They get that you're going to face challenges. And it's much better to just be honest about it and upfront about it if that marriage happens, right, and the investor decides to invest and the entrepreneur decides to accept, it's probably going to be a very long relationship, arguably longer than a marriage, right? In many cases, it could be. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think like the average length of marriage, like at least in the US, is like eight years. And, you know, oftentimes you invest in a startup and 10 years later, you know, the, you're still working with them as an investor. So... Absolutely. I think that's a great point about being transparent and uh, upfront about both the good stuff and the bad stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then being able to, being willing to sort of lean on your investment partners when the time comes, they, that's what they're there for, right? They're there to help make the venture a success. Exactly. So Mans, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to come on the show. Really great conversation and appreciate you sharing your insights. No, well, thank you for having me. I appreciate your interest. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out.